This is Jim Wills, and you are listening to the Crave Magazine Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. Gamelan's a community thing, and that's actually the most important thing about Gamelan. Art in early times, it's one of the first things found in every single culture of the world. Learn to become your own greatest teacher and your own greatest fan. Find your flow and do your creative expression every day. I care about art because it is a fundamental way of people expressing themselves. Today on the podcast, I'm here with an incredible visionary fantasy artist. She works in many different mediums, which we'll get into, uh, and her work is mystical, it's powerful, it moves me every time I see one of her pieces. Uh, I am here with Adrian Tamar Arachne. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Thank you so much. It's thanks. My, it's my honor to be here. This yeah, is great. thanks. For, oh, I'm actually here at your home studio, your digital <laughs> workplace, if you will, in your, in your tiny home, and I uh, thank you for inviting me into your space. And uh I like to start off the podcast with an inspiration, something that inspires you. And that can be anything. So it can be a quote, another artist, piece of art, piece of music, movie, whatever, something that you carry with you that inspires you. Oh my goodness, the list is long. Um, it's, it's hard to choose just one. I guess I'll go with the first thing that comes to mind, which is um, one of my first inspirations as an artist when I was quite a bit younger, and it was the movie Princess Mononoke by Hayao Miyazaki. Princess Mononoke. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's many Miyazaki fans. Let's okay. Let's your show. Yeah. Um, he's he's a, a Japanese animator, but I wouldn't qualify his animated films as classical anime. They're mystical and really, to me, very shamanic stories about these characters having to navigate through lots of different archetypes, and it's often like a fool's journey type of a situation. Okay. But Princess Mononoke is a story of um, this wild woman in the forest who rides wolves, and she she's in relationship with the spirit of the forest. And she's a wolf rider? Yeah. She's <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful story that, I guess, has themes of, like, Avatar or Pocahontas, where it's like the wild versus the threat of man and man's okay. tyranny. It's kind of that okay. trope. Yeah. But it's such a beautiful, lush, vibrant film that I remember when I was just a little kid relating so deeply with the story and mm. wanting to bring something to life that really made people feel like they were in relationship with nature and okay. with, like the bioluminescent spirit of the other world. And Sure, sure. Yeah. And so that inspiration of that that film is sort of carried with you in, mm-hmm. throughout life and into your art. Intimate, yeah. You said a couple yeah. things that I picked up on there, relationship with nature and bioluminescence, <laughs> which we will totally get into, but I know that those two things are definitely within your art. Yes, absolutely. So, so let's talk about your art career or your art, your, your journey, if you will. Sure. Um, tell me sort of how you came about becoming an artist. Oh, man. Well, I'll try not to give the beginning of time version. <laughs> a long, long time ago. Uh, <laughs> 
But I mean, I guess, I guess this is a common answer, but you know, I've been an artist my whole life. Sure. You know, I mean, I've been creating since I was a little kid. I mean, it was obvious that I had a bent in that direction from the time that I was even just, you know, five, six, seven years old. It, it's funny because my mom was literally a professional athlete and I inherited none of that. Really? Like right away as a kid, I had no <laughs> physical aptitude for sports. <laughs> I think if you threw a volleyball at me, even now I would curl up in fetal position and just not be able to <laughs> handle it. But, but I mean, I could draw in perfect photorealism by the time I was 16. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was rent winning art competitions and shows and all of that and and just kind of experimenting I mean I was definitely like a nerdy fantasy obsessed teenager and um, definitely always engaging in other realms and other worlds and reading lots of fantasy books and yeah spending time on like role-playing games online so so I was I was an artist and also a storyteller I think from a really young age okay. and, and the merging of those two always showed up in my art you know I wanted to draw characters I wanted to draw worlds Okay. And the idea of concept art, which was the creation of worlds, lands, themes, um, a look, if you will, of a whole world, was really the kind of art I wanted to make. And eventually, when I was 22, I went to art school in San Francisco with the aim of being a concept artist for Disney or for Pixar, for, for LucasArts. Okay. And, and so I studied illustration for a few years. You said, you. it sounds like you knew at a really young age, mm -hmm. hey, I want to be an artist. Mm -hmm. Did your parents, parents support that journey? Your athlete mom? Um, and... <laughs> to an extent they did. I mean, my parents were always supportive in that, um, you know, they recognized that I was artistically uh, talented and skilled and, and focused in my life. And, and they were, yeah, they were supportive as they could be. I, I, I grew up in a, in a, in a household where um, there was not a lot of peace amongst my parents. Mm. There was, they had a very difficult, very combative relationship. So the, the home itself was kind of a place more of war than peace. All right. Yeah, and I think for me that drove me deeper into another world. Sure. You know, sure. into so in a sense in a sense that supported in a roundabout way, we can look <laughs> at it that way. Yeah, yeah. You um, found solace in your fantasy world. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right, totally. And then going to art school when it comes to financial support, my dad really wasn't in a place my parents had divorced by the time I was eighteen, by the way, and this is when I was twenty two when okay. I entered art school. My dad really wasn't in a place to, to pay for it. My mom, the best she could do was like co-sign on my on my art loans. Your loans, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not the smartest financial choice in my whole life. And in San Francisco, of all places, too. So what art school expensive. was that? It was Academy of Art University. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I lived right downtown mm. in the middle of the city. <laughs> I rented like a 400 square foot apartment with two other art students. Yeah, and yeah. we like split it up three ways. Oh and like gosh. I lived in the living room with like some screens. And like we all were just cramming our little our, our art creation in this tiny place, not totally unlike this now, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, how big is how big is this place here? I'm not sure on the square footage. Um, I think this tiny house can't be what it can't be more than like 250. I was gonna say yeah, it doesn't look like much, like 300. So you so you art school, knowing that you want to be an artist, and then you you said you studied sort of like concept art and or you you had this intention of working. Uh, it sounds like in, in the film industry or TV industry right, yeah. as an artist? In the film industry, in the animation industry, potentially in the game industry, um, which now is basically, the game industry has overtaken the film industry now in like the amount of concept art and animation uh, yeah. that is demanded. So yeah, that was a whole different world for me. I mean, I had come from a small town in Temecula where I was kind of the good artist in town. And where? 
uh, or sorry, in a small town in California. Temecula was the... <laughs> Temecula is the name of the town. Okay. That's where I was from. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, so I came from Temecula, which is a small town in Southern California. Okay. And kind of like a small conservative town in Southern California. Like when people think of SoCal, they think of LA. Right. There's a lot going on there. But Temecula, where I grew up, which is an hour south of LA, is kind of your conservative, small Christian town, mm. you know? Okay. These days it's grown quite a bit, but, but from there to San Francisco, suddenly I was in art school with all these progressive people with really stimulating ideas and, and the standard of, of what teachers were expecting and, and, you know, bringing, bringing industry standard into the conversation, you know, that, that changed everything for me. And I really pushed myself to see what I was capable of from that point forward. We're sitting here today in Denver, Colorado, so mm-hmm. you're not, obviously not working in Mm-mm. the music or the movie industry, are you? <laughs> no. no, no. At what point did you decide that wasn't for you and you wanted to take a different direction? Oh, man. Yeah, this is a fascinating turn of events. I couldn't, I really couldn't push my loans to stay in art school beyond about halfway through. Okay. I got about two and a half years in and nothing came together to support me. And if I was going to um, do the work full-time route and take one class at a time, I would have been crawling through for like eight years, which at that point was a really discouraging thought. Sure. So all of the signs seemed to point me in the direction of dropping school. And, you know, I kind of raised the white flag and decided to do that. But on the way out, I had acquired a contact at LucasArts. And I thought, well, here's my Hail Mary throw, right? Like, let's see if I'm good enough even halfway through to to land a gig. And I I have an interview with this woman, and we're on the phone. And um, she goes, what do you want to do here? And in that moment, everything in me was like, oh, my God, not this. (laughs) You're like, I don't want to design Star Wars yeah. For the, yeah, I suddenly in that moment saw this flash of myself just bent over a desk for like hours and hours and hours drawing disposable art. It was going to be thrown away. It wasn't going to be used. It was going to be, you know, it was it was someone else's vision that I may or may not even believe in. And I realized like, you know, it was one of those core realizations where I'm like, I'm not here to make other people's stuff come to life. I really need to create my own world. Now, looking back, I can give that full sort of capsulized version of what that sure, realization was. Sure. But at the time, I was a mess. I had a crisis. I didn't create art for a year. I kind of fudged my way, you know, I fudged my way through that interview and then just crisis out, essentially. Right. And then the strangest turn of events at all happened, which is that I, I, w- I went back to massage therapy in the city and was massaging full-time for like a year and a half okay. after that and killing it. I was doing really well. All my clients were like CEOs and investment bankers and attorneys. And I was going to their houses and massaging them. And, you know, by, by just about every city standards, but San Francisco doing pretty well financially. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, had kind of been my fallback plan. But I really was at a point, this was around 2012, uh, going into 2013. I really was at a point where there was a tipping point in my consciousness where... My spiritual beliefs, which I would say have always been the underpinning of my artistic expression, were reaching a tipping point where, where all of the things that I, like the paradigm I was in in my life, sure. like how I viewed life, was too constraining for where my consciousness was wanting to grow. Okay. And I manifested a contact 
through one of the massage studios I was involved with who invited me of all places to a indigenous medicine ceremony with a local um, medicine or a, a local um, Native American church in Berkeley. And for some reason I said yes and I went. And uh, I had my first entheogenic experience with San Pedro, drank the San Pedro medicine for the first time in my life. And everything in my life that was not aligned with my authentic truth fell off me wow. pretty much overnight. Wow. It, was, it was a very dramatic experience. In one of the realizations I had during that experience, I realized that I had been in San Francisco kind of for everybody else's reasons and not my own. Right. And all right. I had really wanted was to go to Colorado. So I left my really well-paying job and all my clients. I left my home. I, I left everything, essentially. I left my religion at the time. I still aligned as, as a Christian, and I left all of that and moved to Colorado within a month. In the middle of December, like during a snowstorm, oh, yeah, it was good insane. Times. <laughs> I flew a friend out from San, from uh, Southern California to join me, and he like helped me drive all of my stuff out there. Yeah. And I moved in with some friends of his that I had never met in Boulder. Nice. But but what happened from that point was what got planted in me was this seed of merging a deeper mystical shamanic experience with the skill set that I had developed in, in art school. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like I began to merge this really unique expression that came from a few different worlds. Sure, sure. And I would say from 2013 through 2014 into 2015, that's what I was developing and growing in my body of work. Okay. The work of yours that I've seen so far, it has kind of a similar sort of, wow, this is, this could be an Adrian piece. Yeah. <laughs> and then it is, you know what I mean? Like, and so do you, do you still kind of like, this is my style that I want to continue to work in or mm. you know, does that make sense? Yeah. I don't no, know if I, I'm I asking totally, a question. I, but. No, I, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Yes and no. It's, I, I don't, I don't think about the things that I'm making in terms of style necessarily. I think for me, it's always concept first. It's okay. always, I've got to feel that heart ping about something that I really want to make. It's got to be surging through me like a really bright light. Right. And then as I create the piece, it's like the, the languaging, I don't really question that. I kind of let it be what it is. And I continue to, I think, follow a very similar process mm -hmm. to, to what I've been developing all the way along. And I might challenge certain aspects of it. I might play with different textures or different approaches. But the feedback you just gave me is kind of what I get from a lot of people, that there is a stylistic signature that seems pretty prominent over my pieces. But it's hard for me as the creator to witness that. Sure, in sure. In that, you know, for me, I'm just making things from my heart as they come through. And and like I said earlier, I'm a storyteller. I'm telling a story. Like, to me, it's the story and the concept first. Mm. And then as, you know, the style follows with that. Your art is a mixture of uh, different mediums, Correct, mm -hmm. like both digital and yeah, and visual traditional painting. Yes, yeah. yeah. Would you I, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I I was digital painting from a young age. I remember having I think a friend when I was um, 
oh god, I must have been 16 or 17. She gave me like a Wacom tablet, like one of the oldest ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. This one was probably like a first generation, like super old one. But I was, I was uh, digital painting with my Wacom tablet okay. with like an early version of Photoshop, probably Photoshop like 5.0 or something way back when. And so I was doing that. In high school, and then when I got into art school, a big part of the illustration and the concept art industry is digital painting. So I refined my digital painting skills in art school and did a lot of character concepts and stuff in art school. And um, I've continued to digital paint since then. Mm. But also, I can't just digital paint. There's something about like physical paint and like really getting um the combination of like colors and textures and hues on physical surface that i that i also really deeply um resonate with in a total different way sure sure what's interesting is that so i oil paint that's that's how i do traditional painting okay but i've had a lot of artists tell me that my oil paintings seem to pick up the same kind of luminosity that digital paintings do sure and that that's kind of hard to find and I can't actually explain to people how I do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't really know. I think I see my concepts in like digital colors. I okay. see them that bright in my head. And then something about having that clear of a vision conceptually seems to transfer to my use of traditional medium in a similar way. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you've mentioned bioluminescence earlier. We talked about that a little bit, mm -hmm. or I brought it up in that it's in your artwork. And when I first saw your work, it looked to me like, like it, it was, how did she do that? Mm. How did she make it glow that way? Mm. Was the question that I was asking myself. Because a lot of your pieces have this kind of luminescence about them, yeah. that they're glowing. And I think there was a piece that I saw that, that um, was maybe a G-Clay or a mm -hmm. reprint or something that, that mm -hmm. I was like, this has to be done digitally. Mm -hmm. But then I saw another piece that you had that was an original. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, it's on the canvas as well how does it happen like it's so, and that's one of the things that really drew me to your art was this kind of luminescence that the work has it's wild it looks like it's lit um and we talked a little bit before we started recording about lighting the pieces and and that sort of stuff how did you develop that of i'm going to start putting luminescence in my pieces well i i guess one of the best ways to to answer this is um I feel like every artist has certain signatures that they um, that are recurring in sure. their work that are that are something that is maybe we could use the word trademark of their inner world, you know, okay. themes that they use over and over and over again. And for me, a theme that has come into my storytelling and into my inner world over and over and over again is kind of this concept of the lamp bearer or the light bringer, mm. the person who has the lamp, kind of like the hermit in the Rider Waite of the Tarot, right? He's standing up on his mountain with his lamp. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I deeply relate to that archetype in, in, in that card. He's standing there with his light and everything else is dark, but it makes the, the, the lamp look really bright. Right. And I think in my storytelling, you know, these these creatures or these characters or these archetypes coming through the darkness with their luminescence and creating such a dramatic contrast is a theme that for some reason just touches on, on something in my soul. Hmm. You know, it's a story that's always permeating through my storytelling and right. through, through um, my images. But it's the question I get asked literally more than anything else from really? everyone. Everyone's like, how do you make it glow? And... It, 
it's very like I don't actually know how to explain entirely. <laughs> You're like an artist secret. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I I would say, you know, as as an artist and as a creative, when you feel something strongly enough, you feel it resonating through your whole being as you're creating something. Sure. There's a flow state that happens beyond mere skill and technique. Yeah. And skill and technique are necessary, right, to execute something well. But there's something when you're when your being is ringing like a bell with a feeling, with a resonance, that there's like a, a knowledge, a skill, an ability to execute that comes through that, that probably goes beyond words, I would say. And that's kind of the best way I can describe what happens when okay. I'm in that state. Sure, sure. And mm -hmm. you said you, from San Francisco, you had the desire to come to Colorado. Mm -hmm. what, what was the reason for that? So I had lived in Colorado for a year when I was 19 and loved it. Okay. <laughs> Just loved it. I like I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I mean, it sounds like when you've talked about Bali earlier, you really resonate with Bali, you know, and in the music and wanting to go there and all that. For me, when I came to Colorado, I felt my DNA come alive. Okay. I felt like I met my soulmate in land. It was like the spirits of the land. Sure, it was a sure. sense of place. It was the mountains. I mean, there just never was a point where I didn't drive over a hill and look at the mountains that I was like, oh my God, you know, that's it. <laughs> like, yeah, it yeah, just yeah. felt like the promised land to me. And after that year, for some reason, I moved back to Southern California and I remember driving back over the Rockies. I was about 20 years old at this point and just being like, this is a mistake. Mm. Like, this is a mistake. Mm -hmm. I will mm -hmm. want to come back here forever. Yeah. And yeah, it took me, what, like seven years to come back. And eventually I did. Yeah. But yeah. I, I guess I had sort of a similar experience. I grew up on the East Coast and... Uh -huh. I was living in Florida and came out here on a ski trip and yeah. kind of had that same, like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I grew up in Pennsylvania and learned to ski there where the mountains in Pennsylvania are kind of like the foothills here. Uh -huh. uh, and so over where you go on a, the ski hill and you can see the the bottom of the slope and the, mm -hmm. the lodge and everything, mm -hmm. where when I came out here on a ski trip and mm -hmm. this, they took me up to the top, I was like, where's the bottom? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes you a half an hour to get down. And yeah. I and just the mountains, like you had said, it's yeah. something about it. It's very awe-inspiring. And You know, to, to be connected to something so much vaster than us, and it's ancient, right? Like those mountains have, have been growing for for millions of years. And to, to experience that sense of awe, there's something sacred about it, yeah. for sure. I mean, I remember even living in, in the bay and going out to see the redwoods or going hiking through the redwoods in that similar sense of awe, right? Like there's this ancient tree it's like a, it's like the whale of trees you yeah, know it's just yeah. this huge thing and it's got like an energy around it and it's and it's mystical and and uh that is church that is the cathedral right like that's a true gnostic experience of the sacred yeah for yeah. sure i'm i'm eternally in love with it it's amazing i got that lifted forerunner out there and i've always got a tent in the back and a sleeping bag <laughs> and you know i'm always off on some trip to the mountains yeah. or the hot springs and yeah, like, you know, I've got that side of me for sure. And, and that, I would say that also feeds into the inspiration of a lot of what I create and do is that connection to the raw source. Sure. Right. Just sure. being in relationship with nature, with the fantastic array of outdoors <laughs> activities yeah. Yeah. that are available here in Colorado. Choose your yeah. activity. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. I love it so much. You know, there's a, a lot to be said for, for communing with nature. And yeah. I think it's, um, heard it from Deepak Chopra the first time maybe of like, he suggests mm. like taking your shoes off and stepping out into the grass or mm. stepping out into nature mm -hmm. on a daily basis to kind of reconnect with the earth. Right. And I feel that when I go into the mountains and, and mm -hmm. you know, I used to live in Boulder as well. Uh, and yeah. 
would just go for hikes, you know, off by yeah. myself and, and just just to hang out. And yeah, totally. It's something very powerful about it. Absolutely, yeah. There was a point when I was living in San Francisco where I was living right downtown, like right next to the financial district in this tiny apartment. And that was the first time in my life that I was that cut off mm. from nature. I really was... At the time, I think I called it the steel iceberg forest, <laughs> of, of, <laughs> to put it poetically, uh, of the city. And and at the time, I was really depressed. It was yeah. really hard. And that's that's where actually I got into my hiking habit in the North Bay. And I would essentially go one day a week and like hug a redwood in the forest yeah. for like hours <laughs> until <laughs> until I felt normal again, and then yeah. I'd come back to the city. But but now I'm actually I'll always be grateful I had that experience and that you know those contrast experiences help you value what you value even more, and now being so close to nature and being able to just get up and go is immensely appreciated in every way. Yeah. 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 Have you ever gone out and painted in the wilderness in nature? From time to time, I'm actually gonna be I'm gonna be doing a lot more of this next year. I'm, I um. I'm planning, I'm planning like a wild road trip where I'm going to go take a bunch of panels and just do some plain air through nice. all of the nature. So from time to time, I've taken like a travel easel or a sketchbook and I've done like some life drawing from nature. And yeah, that in and of itself is like its own mystery school. It, it can teach you a whole lot sure. just sitting and, and um, drawing from life. And I mean, a lot of a lot of what constitutes my work is stuff from the imaginal realm and fantasy worlds, mm -hmm. and and that is a huge part of what I do. I like to create something from nothing, but at the same time, part of what helps you create something from nothing believably is doing lots of life drawing and and doing lots of witnessing and observing and doing observational study in your art. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier about moving to Colorado and. Stepping outside of one's comfort zone is a theme that I find with many artists, mm -hmm. successful artists. Diving into the abyss. Yeah, in yeah. that, and and I have long believed that for a long time. And I, people who listen to this podcast know that I've talked about it with other artists. And but I think that's a real, that's really important. The idea of stepping outside of your comfort zone mm -hmm. to grow, uh, right. and especially here in the West, we are so geared towards comfort. Right. You know, AC. We got AC in our cars. We got you know super mm -hmm. cushiony seats and everything you know it's always about comfort and people can get really complacent in that in that comfort and absolutely you moved out here to Colorado it sounds like not on a whim but it like I'm done in San Francisco oh, I need yeah. to go somewhere else and you packed yeah. up and moved it was a very hard decision I mean I had a lot of comfort there that could have continued to cradle me in a certain way sure and the speed and the catalytic nature with which I came to that decision, it was like a lightning bolt. And there was a lot of people in my life who were upset with my decision, who didn't understand and who didn't support it. And there was family members who were like, wait, you drank what with who? And you're going to do what? There's a lot of that. And, you know, it's when I think about our indigenous roots as human beings and where we would have come from in a more tribal sense mm -hmm. in our, in our more distant past, the concept of initiation would have been something that would have been more commonly embraced within a village setting. Yeah. And the traditional initiation doesn't happen without diving into the abyss and having to come out the other side right? with your strength, with your identity, sure. with your creativity, whatever it is that you're doing. 
And, you know, just speaking to my own life, that's what that situation felt like. It was an initiation. It was, you know, you've been, you've received as much as you can from this situation. Now you literally have to put it all to the test by diving into the abyss and seeing if you can survive, you know, right, and not right. everyone survives. Right? Yeah, no, you're totally right. So I think the sort of tamed American, the average conventional comfort or comfortable person is on some deep soul level craving initiation. Oh, I'm sure. I think this runs really deep in our blood. Yeah. And so, you know, we could call it maybe a romanticization or a, or a mystical perspective of what I went through, but that's that's the perspective I take. It was an initiation. And there was many parts of diving into the abyss where I didn't know if I was going to be able to make it and I didn't know I was going to keep going. And there was times back then, too, when, when the moment I landed here, I was diving deep into a new form of my creative process. And I was penniless. You know, I was digging money from between couch cushions to yeah. try and get on the bus to go to the store to get some rice and beans. You know, that was very much a part of the reality yeah. for a huge chunk of time. And luckily, I was living with some people at the time who were supportive creatives who, at the very least, gave me a space to be and, and uh, weren't requiring that I pay rent and you know, that was, that was, um, a help for the moment, but, but, you know, hell yeah, you know, <laughs> hell yeah, That's, that, that is how it goes. Well, you know, and I think here in the West, the comfort, the constraints of comfort is sort of yeah. built into our culture in that we go through school, some sort of educational process, right. get a job. And then right. it's that traditional, oh, I need a, I get a, into a relationship. Here's the template. And I get a house and a dog and two and a half kids. And, mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden I have all these things and now I have to, I'm stuck working mm -hmm. to pay for all the things that I bought or whatever. And I think it's, a, it can be really freeing, even though in the time it doesn't seem like it's freeing when you're digging in the couch oh, cushions. Yeah. Right. It is really freeing and it, yeah. and it kind of opens the world up to what your choices, whatever I want to do. I, I'm not constrained right. to. Mm -hmm. paying a mortgage and providing for mm -hmm. all these whatever and yeah. so you have the one who doesn't have a lot of those constraints has that ability to explore a little more i think yeah i mean i i don't know when i when i even think about trying on the life that you described like something in me dies <laughs> like, I, just like, I don't think i was ever i don't think i was ever built for it yeah like, i can't i i think i think had i ever seriously tried to contort myself to that life I think I would have gotten seriously ill. Yeah. I, I seriously do. I think I would have had cancer or I would have just autoimmune diseases, something. Sure. Yeah. A, lo a lot of artists have that, like, I, that same kind of mm -hmm. attitude of, uh, I know I certainly do. Oh, yeah. I can't be constrained yeah. into a box or in a cube. Right. I, I never, <laughs> I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronomer. Um, yeah. And I realized that much of modern astronomy is not looking at a through a telescope yeah almost none of it is it's all looking at a computer screen sitting at a desk right even if it's in an observatory you're still sitting at a desk looking at a screen and sure. i didn't want to do that i, I yeah. would rather you're like i want to be in the frontier yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the final frontier. exactly oh, you want to be a member of the star trek <laughs> that's what you really wanted you know i often said that if given the opportunity i would go to space uh, and yeah and i think that you know, while while our current space program may not uh, encourage it, uh -huh. in my elder years, if that's an opportunity, and I'm like, I'm not coming back to Earth, kind of thing, I'm, yeah. I'll take it. You know, what I mean, yeah. just to be an yeah. explorer and to see other things, and that's why I love traveling. It's going to places yeah. that many people don't go and seeing, experiencing mm -hmm. different cultures and different people and different mm -hmm. 
visuals. I mean, Colorado is beautiful, but there are places that I've been to now that are as if not more beautiful than Colorado. That, oh, yeah. That are just, sure. you know, breathtakingly beautiful. Were, were you like that? Like, even when you were a kid, you wanted to be an adventurer? You wanted to oh, absolutely. Uh, explore the, the never-before-found land? Yeah, yeah. Well, you had said that, that you were very... That you played online role games. Yeah, were, I did. Were yeah. You, did you were you a Dungeons and Dragons nerd at all? Or? <laughs> uh, to to a certain extent, people more wanted me to draw their characters. Okay. <laughs> they wanted me to play, but I but I played like basic games online that followed that trope. Sure. So text based role playing. Yeah, yeah I yeah. loved all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in one sense, I'm probably almost as much of a writer as I am an artist. I just don't. I haven't like pursued it right. to the same degree. But yeah, the storytelling element for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was a Dungeons and Dragons nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> yeah, as a kid, I didn't. I have never played as an adult, but I, that fantasy. And so, speaking of fantasy, when I look at your work, I don't. I never really associated it with like fa- mystical realm. Yeah, I can see, mm-hmm. but you, but I don't. It's when I think of fantasy, and I guess I mean, there's mm-hmm. many different subgenres. Mm-hmm. I guess, but I, I think of like dragons and and mm-hmm. you know, kind of mystical creatures. That mm-hmm. your yours art, from what I've seen so far, seems. For the most part, oh, okay. So you're pointing to a piece on the wall. There's an owl though in that piece, but um, yeah. And some what are those skulls? Skulls. Like, if you want to, if you want to come over here and look at it better, you can. I know where. I'm gonna need to make sure that I put a, a picture of this online so people can see it. It's a purple, yeah. predominantly purplish pink piece with an old lady. It looks like, mm-hmm. and then an, and she's got an owl. There's three skull arm. wolves around her. Skull wolves. Okay. That's pretty fancy. Yeah. yeah, so so what's unique about my work, I'd say I'm not quite a fantasy artist and I'm not quite a visionary artist, but a lot of my a lot of my pieces kind of cross both worlds. Sure. You know, fantasy art was my original passion. You know, I loved all the Frank Frazetta stuff and the Brahms stuff and the, you know, uh, even um Brian Froud, the fairy. I liked I loved all different genres of fantasy art. And fantasy art in and of itself as a genre is something I've followed for a long time. Okay. And, it, and it branches off in lots of different directions. It's not just guys in armor with dragons right, and right, unicorns. Sure. You know, it's it, there's a lot of different forms of vision or of um, fantasy art. And so I think those elements are in a lot of my work. And I've literally been hired by clients to paint unicorns and dragons. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. I, I do have a fantasy following. And also a lot of my work... I would say also merges with um, the concepts of visionary art. Mm. So, you know, bringing in the spiritual, the shamanic realms and bringing in sort of spiritual symbolism into what I'm creating. So I kind of merge both. Sure. And because of that, a lot of my following online, a lot of the, the people who come to me kind of come to me from both worlds. Like, you know, I could go to Arise or Sonic Bloom and sell a bunch of pieces to the visionary art community. And then there's people from the fantasy illustration community online who all find my stuff and it also appeals to them. Right, right. So there's a few different genres that seem to be attracted to the kind of stuff that I do. Okay. And I and I kind of, in that sense, I, there's like a Venn diagram. <laughs> like, you know, if, if so you kind a of Venn just diagram, uh, yeah, cross no, over, there's two circles cross, yeah. Absolutely, I'm a little bit of both. So that's why I call myself a visionary fantasy artist. I feel like it kind of covers both. Okay, sure. Until yeah, I find a better sense. name. Yeah. I'm sure, at some point yeah. I find a better name. You don't want to box yourself too much. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So let's get a little deeper. You ready? Sure. Okay. Uh, why should we care about art? Why should we care about art? Because art is the epitome of curiosity. And without curiosity, we die. We get stuck. 
you know, we stop exploring, we stop asking questions, we stop creating. You know, curiosity is a salvation from a story that is stuck in a single narrative. Mm. And curiosity keeps us going what if. We would never feel if we weren't curious, right? We would be struck in our disease and our story and everything that's keeping us small without curiosity. We would never explore without curiosity. We would never have discovered anything without curiosity. And art is the ultimate curiosity. What if? Yeah, yeah. You know? You, yeah. So you've talked a lot of challenge, about challenges that you had growing up and going through your artistic journey. Are there any challenges that stand out in becoming a full-time artist, if you will, mm-hmm. or a professional artist, if you will? Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, well, um, I mean, this in and of itself could be a, a full podcast for sure. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's been a lot of lessons learned along the way. You know, I'm, I'm skilled, I'm talented, I've put in my 10,000 hours, I'm a good artist, and, and also, so is everybody. Right. You know, right. Um, you, you go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, you, you go anywhere and you're going to be just, your feed will be riddled with people who are amazing at what they're doing. They're incredible. So for me, part of the turning point, and this really was probably about three years ago now, was um, really diving deeply into learning what it takes to advertise myself which I think most artists will say is like a pain and something that they would rather avoid and not face at all. You know, we all just want to be in the studio creating what we're creating, right? We don't want to deal with all of that. Um, I want an agent that reps me out. Right, (laughs) yeah, yeah, totally. But, you know, I I saw this as kind of like an ogre I needed to face. You know, I was like, chances are I'm not getting as much work as I could get because I'm just not actually working on exposure and putting myself out there. So what I did for a while is I would set an alarm on my phone for 30 minutes a day, like maybe every other day that said, just focus on self-promotion. And I was like, it's half an hour, it's 30 minutes, I can squeeze that in anywhere what and kind just of, focus on self-promotion. What kind of self-promotion things would you do? I would make an Instagram post, I would make a Facebook post, I would share on a bunch of groups, I would, it was like anything that came to mind that could contribute towards self-promotion. And just getting that mileage out started to get me more jobs almost instantly. Wow. Okay. Just doing half an hour, like every other day or so. And it was like painful at first. I'm like, Oh my God, this feels, it feels slutty when you're like, are like working on self-promotion. Yeah. You're like, Oh, you know, like I'm just not the kind of person that wants to do that. But in getting that mileage going, you know, st- my stuff just starts started to, you know, I started to see certain things get shared a lot more. I mean, these days, you know, if you share something on Instagram, it's gone in seconds. Right. There's, there's just so many things coming through the feed that you've got to keep it going. And that in and of itself is something that people hire people for. Sure. You know, Absolutely. that's a whole job in and of itself. But, but that was one of the things that helped me a lot was getting serious about my self-promotion game and getting serious about the kind of jobs I wanted. Like these days, I tend to attract clients who want me to do stuff that's in my wheelhouse but for a while, I was kind of attracting general clients who were just like, you're a good, you're good at drawing, you know, you can probably draw my like commercial person sitting in an office chair and like, you know, for my website. Did and you take those jobs or? I took a couple and um, I think more and more I just started turning them down. I was just like, no, you know, yeah, I could do this, but I, I just don't want to. And, you know, for that reason, it's probably taken me a bit longer than it might take, you know, other people to get to the point where I'm attracting some of the stuff that I'm getting now. But 
you know, I, I would also say it's, it's important to know who you are and what you're doing. And, sure. and if you've got like a core belief and a conviction about that, stick to it, you know? I agree. There's a fine line, I think, yeah. uh, between having that integrity of like, this is my art and sure. I don't want to do these other jobs because that's not what I do, sure. even though I can, Yeah. but that's going to bring in the money. So yeah. I think that is a fine line. And, uh, and I talked to, uh, recently, Ben Mackinnon is a musician and a videographer you know, we talked a lot about musicians and how mm-hmm. musicians don't want to sell. They feel like a sellout or, you know, you hear it most, I think, mm-hmm. most often in music right. of like a musician or, an, or a band who licenses their work for a TV commercial. Yeah. And then right. all of a sudden they're a sellout. And yeah. it's like, well, no, that TV commercial just paid them the money that they can now mm-hmm. use to pursue the art in the way they want to. Yeah. I think that's really important for artists to totally. realize of I would say have a strategy, you know, for me, it's like, okay, I'll take less of those jobs, but I'll give more massages on the side or I'll do, you know, it's like, if I really need to pay the bills, what, what is a bigger, like, what does it hurt me less to do? Sure. Sure. (laughs) I can sit in my studio and paint all day, but yeah, totally. You know, it's not going to put food on the table right at so, this point so my strategy has become if i'm having a slow month where i really just need to pay the bills i'll take some massage clients or i will i mean i'm also um, i'm an astrologer and a psychic and i have a pretty big reading clientele and i do readings you know kind of interwoven through through my weeks and and through my time so i have a few things going on and i've made peace with that you sure. know i mean the main bulk of what i'm doing these days is painting which is fantastic yeah, it's a dream absolutely country, you know and it's been a long slow crawl to get there but but if it's you know if i've got to take some soulless gigs <laughs> to, to pay the bills i would far rather do some other form of healing work on yeah. the side so that's my personal compromise and for someone else it it might be less painful for them to do a few soulless gigs alongside their like dream work, right? You know, and in order to to move forward, that might be their strategy, and I have nothing against that. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's all about whatever you do, be intentional about it. I would say. Yeah, I, there's there's some. I mean, I'm sure there's probably hundreds of stories of people who are fantastic mm-hmm. artists, but because they're so focused on I am an artist and I'm creating art and that's all I want to do They're they are this typical starving artist in that they they haven't marketed themselves because they either don't know how or it's not it's soulless as you said where they just I can't bring myself to do that because I'm an artist and I think it's so important for artists to realize that is the business side is a huge part of it yeah Yeah. probably even more so especially early on than Mm -hmm. I'm going to be in my studio working Uh, I found and I've talked about this before when I had a photography studio, uh, we probably spent less than twenty percent of our time in the studio. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. shooting. It was it was all post production work, sure. and it was marketing, and it was contacting clients, and all that sort of right. stuff that's yeah, totally. done to keep the business going and thriving. Well, negotiation. A lot of artists aren't aren't naturally great at negotiation. It feels like a weird world to them. It's, it's, it's a business strategy, right. right? You know, like, like going back and forth with people on quotes and starting your initial quote high and expecting to negotiate with someone. I think there's a lot of artists who are scared that like if they turn someone away or if they intimidate them with their, with their quote, their initial quote that, um, there goes the job, you know, but that's part of it. You've, you've got, you've got to ask for what you really want and what really what you really need and, and then negotiate. From How that. did you, how did you, how do you determine your pricing structure? 
a few different ways. It, it, you know, there's, I guess there's kind of the strategy of like trying to trick the budget out of somebody, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> if I have a corporation coming to me and they've got like a $10,000 art budget, you know, and, and they're not going to say that to me right up front, right? They're going to ask me my, they're going to ask me my price. But, you know, if it's, if it's a single person and they've got a, quite a bit of a smaller budget, you know, I try to, I try to make an, an open, fairly comfortable discussion with someone about that and, and see if we can come about a price that works for both of us. For me, covers materials and time and, and for them gets them a product that they want that's within the budget that they have. It really depends on the details of the piece. If it's a really complex uh, composition, that's definitely going to ramp up my prices and time. And then, you know, depending on the size of the piece, that's where, you know, if someone's got a smaller budget, we'll do a far smaller piece. Mm. But, you know, it, it, it really depends on the person and the scenario. I both kind of charge by the size of the piece and by time spent for the most part. Okay. And yeah, that varies. I try not to pay myself less than $30 an hour. You know, I have a range that I'll go in depending on what I'm working for with someone. What do you think holds most people back from pursuing their art career when they want, if they want to be an artist? Well, it's, it's a, it's hacking your way through the wilderness. There's no set path. I mean, it's not safe. You know, it's, it takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of bravery. In ways it's lonely. It's pretty much the exact opposite of the template we're given. Mm Mm-hmm. There is no template to be a successful artist, is there? No, there really isn't. <laughs> there really isn't. And I've listened to so many podcasts of successful creatives that I admire, and every single person has done it a different way. Sure, yeah. And a different path, and almost intimidatingly so, where it's like, well, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, well, then what do I do, you know? It's it's really, um, to, to, to enter into being a full-time artist and to aim at success with that and to really walk that path. There's a lot of trying and failing. There's a lot of just throwing things at the wall until something works. Sure. And I think if you're, you're like terminally afraid of failure, you're not going to get very far, you know, cause it takes failure to learn. Right. You know, failure right. really is just failure way to success. That's yeah, right. what I've heard many Absolutely. times. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and that was a huge thing for me for a long time that kept me only getting so far and then kind of retracting and falling back on what was safe. And then that didn't work either. So then I was kind of pressed forward again by my own sort of soul's desire to do this. And ultimately these days it's just come down to like, I'm going to keep failing. (laughs) It's a sign that I'm moving forward. Sure. And and every time I fail, it's, it's something every time I fail, I'm learning something that, that doesn't work, which is valuable information. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that scares a lot of people, and rightfully so. You know, it doesn't feel good to stumble along and right. to do something right. new that and that maybe no one believes in. Though I'm sure many people have heard it. People listening to this have probably heard it many times. Is uh-huh. that the best lessons always come from failure? Absolutely. You know. Yeah, hundred um, <laughs> percent. So earlier you talked about like social media aspect and mm-hmm. and doing the thirty minutes a day or every yeah. other day of, of promoting yourself. Sure. Did, have you ever, or are you in galleries? Do you pursue gallery representation at all? or From time to time, but most of my sales come from online clients. They do. Okay. Um, in fact, most of my sales 
come from people I've formed some personal connection with or they followed my more personal story feed okay. on Instagram or on Facebook. So my, my largest collectors, like people who've really bought the most of my originals, come from really personal contacts. Mm. Part of the reason I put that out there is that your story and who you are and your journey as an artist is part of what's going to make your art valuable to your yeah. collectors. Yeah. Absolutely. If even if people don't know you, but they see something personal they can relate with in your art, sure. That that in and of itself can be just as much of an in as like having a collection at a gallery where like collectors can come through and and see your stuff. There's a lot of ways to find collectors, but for me, that has been my particular route. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I hear a lot that people want to connect to a story, mm-hmm. sure, and they want to hear that story. And yeah. for, for me, uh, with your art, and what turned me on to you was the elephant. I told you I have mm-hmm. an affinity for elephants. I'm not sure if elephants are my spirit animal, maybe my land spirit animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I connected to this elephant piece that you had, and I was just like, wow, this is beautiful, brilliant. Mm. Um, we had a lot of elephants at our wedding as well. And Yeah, that piece was really popular. That was one of my first, like, I mean, I would call it like a viral piece. Like when I completed that, I remember it got shared everywhere. I had it in a bunch of different shows. I still sell so many prints of that piece. Yeah. It's like a popular one. Yeah, you yeah. said shows. So not a lot of gallery work. Have you done a lot of shows or festivals or things here like that? Here and there, yeah. I do galleries here and there. Um, festivals, yeah. In fact, this last summer I was at Arise. I was at Sonic Bloom. It, it's fun, you know, I mean, I'll do some live painting and I'll have some stuff in the gallery. Um, I actually did pretty well at Arise this year. I, I sold, like, almost all my pieces cool. that I had in the gallery, which that's is pretty awesome. great. Yeah, and I think that's that's where, you know, like, the, the part where my fantasy work kind of crosses over with visionary sure. art. That's where festivals are, you know, that, that, can, that scene can work well. But also the average festival goer doesn't have a huge budget for art. Right, you're not going to so. sell many... Not always. Six-digit pieces or yeah, whatever. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not common. So we talked about your history and how you came up as an artist. If you could go back, if you had 60 seconds to go back and talk to yourself when you were uh, living downtown San Francisco in a 400-square-foot apartment with three <laughs> other or two or three other artists, what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, girl, loosen up. <laughs> loosen up. Oh, my God. Have some fun. Yeah? I was so serious. I took my work really seriously. I was doing 80 hours a week, you know, these very stiff-looking pieces, too. There wasn't a whole lot of life in my stuff from art really? school. Okay. I was good, technically, you know, but I was good in a way that was reflective of my consciousness at sure. that time, which was very repressed. Sure. And I, here I was living in this amazing city, and I was just so shut down. Uh, so I think it's loosen up, loosen up. <laughs> Have some fun. Uh, that's kind of like letting go of control a little yeah, bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you got to trust your play. Your play is leading you to great places always. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's flow state, right? When you're just having fun and, you know, that that's where the juice comes from. Yeah. That's the good stuff. Flow state. We I've talked to other artists about that before. Mm-hmm. You hear about being in the flow a lot, especially with, yeah. like, sports. But I think it's true in any aspect, mm-hmm. especially creative arts. Oh, absolutely. Where you're in the flow and you're just working and the next thing you know, it's like yeah. five hours went by. And... Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're falling over because you haven't eaten for seven hours and you're like, then you like stumble to the kitchen to shove calories in a bowl. You don't even care what it is. You're like goat cheese and blueberry muffin, <laughs> and a cranberry, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you go back and, it, yeah, totally. That's That's a huge part of it. Where the brain just kind of shuts off and you're just, you know, you're still doing really technical stuff, but you're just in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, for me, it feels like an altered state. It actually feels like I'm high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you uh, do you use any sort of paraphernalia to in your in, in painting your art and creating art? At times, yeah. Something you feel comfortable talking about? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, this is this has actually been uh, a central part of my spiritual practices and my sort of I would say my my evolution of my soul and like my life and like the, the just the, the soul substance that my work is coming from mm -hmm. working with entheogenic substances has been a central part of that I would say over the past six years or so so I'm not always altered when I'm working on pieces I'd say not often every now and then sure but I've worked a lot with um, various plant medicines yeah in a big way and that's been huge for just getting out of my own way you know, I'm, I am one of the people who ascribes to the belief that these plants have spirits and those spirits want to help us out and help us get out of our own way. And all of the ceremonies that I have engaged in, in those altered states, I enter them with an intention or a prayer, if you will. And what I have discovered in those altered states is this kind of addiction to control and this sort of, um, when your neural nets are really shut down and contracted on a particular way of thinking, mm -hmm. there's nothing like an altered state to shed. That's not the right word. It's like to burst out of that, that cave, you know, and, yeah. and to make a jump in your conceptualization process that might as well have been the Grand Canyon before. Right. And that said, I'm not addictive. You know, I don't use these things very often, but the times that I have have been consistent and they've been pivotal for my sure. creative process. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. Uh, we, we as a culture, worship may not be the right word, but we, we give a lot of praise to really great art. And as a kid growing up, you know, oh, like I love this band or this music or whatever. And then I find as an adult that a lot of the music that was made, I mean, even if it's just smoking pot, like a lot right. of the music that was created was in an altered state. Yeah. Uh, a lot of artists I know, Rand, you know, Randall Morgan, they, they do psychedelic art. Mm -hmm. And he actually said some of the same things that you said, <laughs> almost verbatim, about the, that experience and about yeah. being able to unlock yeah. the the doorway. And, and they, Randall has said that they, his, he sees their art as a sort of roadmap, if you will, mm. through the psychedelic experience. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah, and some visionary art gets way out there. It's, it's like, you know, people definitely bringing like the dmt world into mm -hmm. existence or the, the, the lsd world that you know you look at alex gray's art and you're mm -hmm. like oh <laughs> right. that's an altered state just looking at that right you know? right for I sure mean, yeah and he i think he speaks extensively about that part of his experience you know it for me i'm i'm not willing to make my creation so representative of that world that they're that kind of visionary art for me, I still want to, it's like I want to go out there and I want to visit that realm. And then I want to come back with a really tangible, pragmatic story that kind of has mm. um, very earthy elements to it. That's yeah. not too hard to access. That, you know, when you look at this piece, there's a character, there's a story, there's something going on. It, it's really shamanic, it's magical, but it, it's an illustration and then it's telling a story about a character. And, and, and to me, there's something very more um, kind of contracted and earthy about that. Sure. But, you know, like altered states used to be part, once again, looking back to indi our indigenous roots, altered states were part of being an adult for Absolutely. a long time. Absolutely. You know, that, that was considered to be a necessary navigation of your adult life is going into altered states, 
coming back, applying whatever it is you had learned or whatever experience you had gained. And I mean, that's absolutely, since I've entered my relationship with intentional altered states, that's how it's felt for me is, is going to this other place, retrieving a story, coming back with that story mm. and then telling the story. That's okay. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, is there any last thoughts or uh, pieces of advice that you want to share with the Crave audience? Oh, man. Well, it's about the midtones. <laughs> it's about the midtones. It's about okay. So, so I'll I'll I'm gonna, that. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as a quote. It's about the midtones. I so so this makes me laugh because I think I during some of my worst struggles as an artist where I really want to throw in the towel and give up, there was times when I thought if I ever wrote a book about some someday success, I would call my book The Midtones. Because there's all these shades of gray between people's... Like, if you read someone's Wikipedia page and it just lists all their biggest successes, there's all these years in between all these successes where this person's struggling and flailing and things don't work and they don't know what they're doing. Right. And so much of that actually ends up constituting the success and the juice and the awesomeness of what you do. It takes the full journey mm-hmm. to get to anything that's worthwhile. And if you're in a point where you're in the midtones, great. You're still doing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, what 18% gray is? 18% gray? Yeah. It's a photography term. So uh, in you know cameras at least traditionally cameras couldn't see color. Yeah. And so cameras were trying to find that midtone. Yeah. The great uh, kind of average exposure. Oh. And 18% gray is actually halfway visually between white and black. Yeah. And so it's 18% gray. And so traditionally in, in photography, you'd use what was called a gray card. Right. You hold up in front of your camera, take a picture of that. And it was 18% gray. Yeah. And wow. that would, that would establish your, your color palette or your, your palette for that exposure. Yeah. I'm altering my statement. It's about the 18%. <laughs> <laughs> it's the new name of the book. 18% gray. The mid-tone. So yeah. you could do that as a subtitle. Right. Totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's part of it. Also, all those mid-tones are part of what makes something sing and look awesome. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, Adrian, how can people get a hold of you? They give are... them some web content <laughs> stuff. Yeah. They're welcome to check out my website, which is adriantamararachne.com. Uh, my Instagram handle is Adrian Tamar Arachne Art. Hit me up on Facebook. Um, I'm pretty friendly. I don't bite too on often. On FBs, you'll respond if people get a hold of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I go through times. I go through times where, like, I'll get a bunch of messages and I can't get back to people right away. But for the most part, I try to, I try to get back to. So everyone. if someone reaches out to you, you, you will eventually. Oh yeah, get I back. try. Good, yeah. good, good. I'm sure I haven't Googled you, but uh, your name is unique enough that I bet you probably own yeah. the first page of Google. If so. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, it does. It does come up that okay. way. Okay. So, yeah, and, and we will, I'll make sure to have links in the show notes for people who can, if they, can, uh, yeah. if they want to reach out to you, they can do so. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's great. Well, awesome. I really appreciate you inviting really me into your space great. and sit down. Yeah. And thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. The music for episode 37 is the experimental European folk music sensation Heilung. The song is Svanrand off their 2019 album Fuda. Check out Heilung on the socials and wherever you listen to your music.
Thank you for listening to the Crave Magazine Podcast. I am Jim Wills, your host and producer for this episode, and I am on a mission to bring art back to the world. And with your help, we can make that happen. So please take a moment to leave a positive review for us on iTunes. And if you like what you heard, even more importantly, tell your friends. If there's something that we can do better, by all means, let us know. And if you are an artist or even just want to hear from a favorite artist, well, send us a message. We are putting this show out for all of us who love and appreciate the arts. So tell us how we can improve. Remember, always be good to one another. And of course, take time to feed your soul with art. Oh, I'm not afraid of